Good morning. Welcome you to Rivermont today, and I invite you to turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 4. Last week we looked at chapter 3 of the book of Daniel, and we saw the Lord God Emmanuel, God with us, go into the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As he often does, God didn't deliver those boys by keeping them out of the dangerous place, but rather he went into it with them. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was amazed at what the Lord had done. And so he decided that this God, this God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, was indeed a powerful God. But he still didn't repent. He admired this powerful God. And he was willing to add him to the pantheon of his other gods. And yet still this God was their God. He was still the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not his God. Some of us may have that kind of relationship with the living God. One of admiration for the, quote, man upstairs, and yet not know him personally. We have to recognize as we come to Daniel chapter 4 that admiring God is not the same thing as worshiping God. Admiring his power and being amazed by his power is not the same thing as repenting before him. Which do you do? As we come to chapter 4, that question lingers in the air. What kind of relationship will Nebuchadnezzar have with the true and the living God? Chapter 4 tells us that it is this God who is able to change us, to change anyone, even someone as proud as Nebuchadnezzar. Even me. Even you. What might it take to humble a proud person like me? Let's pray together. Father, we ask as we come to your word that you would open our eyes to the truth. We ask that you would lead us to know that you are the true and living God before whom we bow and repent. Teach us, we pray, by your spirit. Amen. The story of chapter 4 begins with Nebuchadnezzar having another dream. And he asked Daniel to come in to interpret it. And this dream in chapter 4 was of a large tree. And in the ancient world, a large tree was often used as an image for divine blessing. And so this tree of blessing grew and it prospered and it provided protection for people and animals. It became a grand and glorious tree until an angel came along and said, cut it down. And let only the stump remain until he acknowledges that the Most High God rules over the kingdoms of men. And then Daniel came to Nebuchadnezzar to interpret that dream, and with compassion he told that king, Your fall is coming. The tree is you, Nebuchadnezzar, and you will go crazy. You will become like an animal until you repent. And then nothing happened for 12 months. Let's pick up the reading in verse 28 of Daniel chapter 4. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my mighty majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, 
until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. Immediately the world, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His kingdom is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At that same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride... He is able to humble. Let's pray together. Father, again, we ask for your power to come upon us. We pray that you would press into our hearts the truth that you are able to humble the proud and lift high the humble. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Seems like it's true that sometimes the way up is down. Many of you know that I like to run in the mountains, at least before my knees started giving me more trouble. And one of my favorite runs is Rocky Row. And it's, it's the, 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 the trail that leads up on the Appalachian Trail near 130 where the footbridge comes across. It's a great trail. It goes up the, the mountain there and it's long and it's arduous and it has about 20 switchbacks going up, up, up. And you have your eye set on this beautiful vista of what God has made. You can look back down the mountain as you run and into the valley and feel like you're on the top of the world. And when you crest this ridge for the first time, you're led to believe that you've arrived at the top. But it's not the top. You simply have come to one of several false peaks on your way to the top. And as I've done a number of times, you're caught in an in-between place. You look down on all that you've conquered and, and at the same time you look up and feel small before the peak that's still in front of you. The trail from this false peak takes you down a mountain ridge in order to lift you to the true peak lying ahead. I always thought when I crested that ridge that I would keep going up or be done with the trail, but I found that you had to go down in order to go up. You had to follow the trail down the mountain a little bit more to come up to the final peak of the trail. Sometimes it's true in life. You have to go down in order to be lifted up. That certainly was true of King Nebuchadnezzar. This is the last story in the book of Daniel that we have of Nebuchadnezzar's life and his reign. And once again, it's 30 years since Daniel has come into Babylon. And 30 years here we have Daniel coming to interpret another dream. Back in chapter 2, in the early reign of Nebuchadnezzar, there was a dream of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom falling before King Jesus. And we wonder, how could he forget 
And now in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is unsettled again by a dream. And he's wondering, what am I supposed to do? The main point of this dream is repeated three times so we don't forget it. It's in verse 17, verse 25, and verse 32. That the true God, the Most High, Daniel's God and ours, rules the kingdom of men and He gives it where He will. How could Daniel forget? How could Nebuchadnezzar forget? Well, if you're anything like me, 30 years is plenty of time to forget your need for the Lord. Especially when you feel like you're on the top of the world. It's easy to forget that we are merely in the shadow of a greater peak, a greater climb. And when we look down on all that we've accomplished, we tend to forget. After Nebuchadnezzar had his dream of his coming insanity, Daniel told him in verse 25, Although you're strong and you're powerful and you're proud, you're going to lose yourself, Nebuchadnezzar. You're going to become like an animal, eating grass, become beast-like, and no longer will you be the regal, the proud ruler over Babylon. As one commentator put it, a man who thinks he is like a god must become a beast to learn that he is just a man. This Nebuchadnezzar's madness promised that it would strip away that veneer of power and control and authority that he believed he had so that he would be enabled to see God for who He truly is. That madness was promised by the Lord through Daniel. But in verse 29, for 12 months, nothing happened. Maybe that was long enough for the king to again put that troubling dream out of his mind until verse 30, one day he was walking on the roof of his royal palace and he mused to himself, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power? as a royal residence, and for the glory of my majesty. Do you hear the pride, the arrogance in this king who feels as though he needs no one, this king who looks out over his city and assumes that he has built it, although he has forgotten all of his slaves, all of his oppressed people have indeed brought it about. This view would have indeed been breathtaking from atop Nebuchadnezzar's palace. The city in those days was was a double-walled rectangle with the Euphrates River dividing it down the middle. And there was a 400-foot-long stone bridge that connected the east and the west sectors of the city that went across the Euphrates River. It was an incredible city. The inner walls were 21 feet thick. And there were guard towers every 60 feet along those walls. And the top was wide enough that a four-horse chariot could turn around on the top. There were outer walls also that were 11 feet thick. And inside the city of Babylon, there was those wonderful hanging gardens where Nebuchadnezzar wanted to appease his wife that he had taken from a nearby eastern city where she had mountains and greenery there. Although Babylon was a plain, he planted these magnificent gardens in the shape of mountains inside the city so that she would be appeased. The wonders of Nebuchadnezzar had built were amazing down to the smallest detail. It's estimated that inside the city, the structures were built with over 15 million bricks. And each one of those bricks had been fired in Nebuchadnezzar's oven and each one were stamped with Nebuchadnezzar's name. Every one of those 15 million bricks. Archaeologists are still today unearthing in Baghdad bricks with Nebuchadnezzar's name on them. It was truly an incredible city. 
And it filled him with pride as he stood, verse 29 says, atop his royal palace. Now, it's important that Daniel says he was standing on the royal palace because the palace had a name. Like when you and I say, I'm going to go to Monticello or I'm going to go to Mount Vernon, we know where that place is because those places have a name. Nebuchadnezzar's palace had a name in his, lang- in his language, and this was it. Translated, it's the place where proud ones are compelled to submit. What's the name of Nebuchadnezzar's palace? The place where proud ones are compelled to submit. And as Nebuchadnezzar, this proud one, surveyed all of his glory, looking down on his subjects, his accomplishments, and his pride, he had lost sight of who was truly in control, who truly had authority, who truly reigns over the kingdom of men. And it is this God, it is our God, who gives power and chooses who reigns, even the lowliest of men, it says in verse 32. Indeed, Nebuchadnezzar was a proud man and he was compelled to submit even atop his palace that bore that name. He had to be brought down in order to be lifted up. The Lord took away Nebuchadnezzar's wisdom and his power and his control. Even his ability to recognize and appreciate the beauty of this place that he had built, the things he trusted in that set him apart, that made him superior and gave him a sense of pride in the world, the Lord took it all away. He was driven to madness, it says, wandering in the fields like an ox, eating grass, verse 32, for seven periods of time. And we're not exactly sure how long that is. It seems as though the Bible is using this as it often uses the number seven as the symbol for completeness and for fulfillment. How long did Nebuchadnezzar wander around mad? As long as it took for the Lord to complete his work of humbling this proud man. That's how long it was. It was long enough for his hair to grow long and matted and for his nails to grow to be like bird claws in verse 33. It was long enough... For everyone to see and notice that this once proud and arrogant king surveying all of his glory had been diminished into nothingness by the true and the living God. How long was he lost in his madness? As long as it took for the Lord to truly humble this proud man. You know, that's the fruit of pride. The consequences of pride in our lives often are a cascading descent into a kind of madness and even a taste of death in our lives. It's it's pride that says, I have no master. I'm going to do what I want, when I want, wherever I want, even if it kills me. It's a kind of pride that says, look at all of my power and look at how I've provided for myself, even if it alienates us from those we love around us. Look at all of my accomplishments, even though I have to step on the backs of other people to name my accomplishments. Yet all of Nebuchadnezzar's power and his glory couldn't stop this mental illness from completely overtaking him and humiliating this proud man before his people. You know, our power is fragile. Our hard work and our wisdom, while good things, they can never be sufficient to serve as a hedge against every problem. We might feel like we're on the top of the world, having made it in the eyes of everyone, but you know that it can come crashing down, don't you? It can come crashing down in the blink of an eye through a phone call or an email that delivers some hard news. 
could come crashing down in a moment in a doctor's office with a dangerous diagnosis. Or in the crash of a car. Or, as it is in our community this week, through a violent storm that chooses your home out of an entire neighborhood. It is pride that thinks we can protect ourselves and we have no need of a Lord who reigns. It is the madness of pride that feels superior to everybody else as if I recognize what's true and beautiful and no one else can. It's pride that leads to a kind of death that scoffs at someone else's fall into sin and says, I'll never do that. It's the grip of pride that suggests that we can accumulate against our future losses and insulate ourselves from the pains of this world. It is pride that looks at the blessings we have received and thinks, look at all that I've done, while we ignore the people and the places that the Lord has blessed us with in our lives. I hope you realize that quite possibly the worst thing that could ever happen to you or to me would be for the Lord to leave us in that place of pride. Quite possibly the most dangerous place in all the world is to be on top. And yet, dear one, the Lord loves us enough. He loves His people enough to pursue that root of the sin of pride in our souls that we might confess that He is King, that He has the authority, He has the power, and He is a King who loves proud sinners like us. It could be that the Lord will enable you to feel the madness of the loss of something you hold dear, that you may feel the wonder of His loving provision. Sometimes the Lord has to take us down in order to lift us up. We see that happen in Nebuchadnezzar's life in verse 34. When the king lifted his eyes to heaven, his reason returned to him, Daniel says. That's what repentance looks like. It looks like lifting our eyes to the Lord, turning away from our sin, turning away from our pride, and unto the Lord for His grace. That's what repentance is. Now we may mistakenly believe that repentance is turning away from doing the bad things and starting doing the good things. But that's not repentance. That's a moral improvement plan. That is moralism that will not save your soul. It will send you straight to hell. Stopping the bad stuff and starting the good stuff. Repentance is turning away from our sin to a God who forgives. A God who is merciful and a God who can change us from the inside out. We can't improve ourselves by doing enough good to merit heaven and call it repentance. For Nebuchadnezzar, that repentance turned away from his pride. He turned away from being consumed with his own glory, his own power, his own beauty. And he turned to the Lord. And as verses 34 and 35 tell us, he recognized that God's kingdom is the everlasting one. God is the one who sits on the throne. God is the one who has all the power and the control. You see, the essence of repentance is looking away from ourselves looking away from what we can do in our pride, what we can accomplish, what we can provide, what we can manage, what we can fix. And repentance turns toward the Lord who saves, the Lord who provides what we most need, and that's His life in us. Repentance like this, I hope you realize, isn't a once and done thing. If you struggle with the sin of pride in your life, for example, 
I can almost guarantee you that you will not repent of that sin once and be done with it forever. Right? Repentance. No matter the sin we battle in our lives, repentance is a daily act where we put our feet on the floor, as Luther said, we put our feet on the floor and we begin repenting right away. That's what it's like to live the Christian life. Repentance is an ongoing thing. Repentance, turning away from our sin and to the Lord, is the daily walk of the Christian life. It's what it will always be like for us. And the truth is, as the, the, the choir sang in that song, there is a place where mercy reigns and never dies. And it's when we turn to the Lord. When we turn to Him for His grace and turn to Him for His mercy again and again and again and His mercy never dies. How do we respond to this truth of Daniel 4 that it is the Lord who reigns, the Lord who rules, and He will give the kingdom to whomever He will? How do we respond? I think there are three ways that we can respond this morning. First is for those who are suffering. For those of you who are afflicted and weary in this world, like the exiles were in Babylon, the response for you is to be comforted. The Lord is able to comfort the afflicted. He's able to come alongside the weary and the worn. The message for you is that the Lord is for you. He has not forgotten you because He is your faithful Father in heaven and He rules over all the kingdoms of this earth. It may feel like a Nebuchadnezzar or another oppressor or another ruler or another sin rules your life, gloating in pride over you. But friends, the enemy of your soul is on a leash and the Lord Jesus holds the leash. He is powerful and He shall never forget you. If you're afflicted this morning, if you are suffering this morning, be comforted by that truth that the Lord reigns. Others of us, This morning, the message for us is to be warned. Because we, like Nebuchadnezzar, might see God wait a few months and we assume the Lord's not watching. We're able to get away with whatever we want to do and I can follow my heart down all of these harmful roads. You may have come under conviction from the Lord. He's calling you sin to mind and you just kind of brush it off, thinking it's some fear to be shaken off or maybe it's just some bad dream. Perhaps you think there's always going to be tomorrow. There's always another day to repent. I'll get to the Lord sometime soon, but I'm having too much fun today. I'm going to live how I want and do what I want. The message for you, dear friend, is to be warned. For the patience of the Lord is not for us to presume upon. The Bible says as long as it is today, today is the day to repent from our pride. Today is the day to turn away from our self-assurance and turn to Him, the Lord who is forgiving and gracious. The third response challenges me a great deal. I think the third response to this truth that the Lord reigns is to recognize the incredible disruptive grace of God in our lives. What did it take for God to transform this admirer in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar, to become one who in verse 37 of chapter 4 praises and extols and honors the King of Heaven. How did that transformation happen from an admirer in chapter 3 to one who repents and worships in chapter 4? 
It took God's gracious humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar's pride for that change to happen. The thing for us proud people to recognize is that in all the world, the most gracious and kind and saving thing that God could ever do to us would be to humiliate us. Because it's when our sin is exposed before God, when our sin is exposed even before other people, that might be the precise means that the Lord uses us to press us into the arms of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. As it often is, the Lord may need to take us down in order to lift us up, lift us up to repent before Him. And we can't receive His saving grace if we spiritually don't think we have any need of grace. The best thing He could do to us may be to humiliate us. Because that's the one thing we don't like to happen, right? We don't like to feel needy. We don't like to feel helpless. We don't like to feel dependent. We don't like to feel broken. We don't like for our flaws to show. Perhaps in a city like ours, in a church like ours, we might recoil at losing face before other people. And yet, knowing Christ is worth it. Having our lives humiliated so that we are driven into the arms of a faithful Savior is worth it. For proud people like me, the road to humility often goes through humiliation. The road to transformation of Nebuchadnezzar was through madness. That he was enabled to see the gracious God who loves and gives and blesses. Friends, the lesson for you and me is that Jesus will use any and all sorts of tools to pry our fingers away from the things we can't let go of so that He can fill us up with something better. That's Himself. We will feel, we will truly feel our need for Jesus when we have very little else to cling to. And Jesus sometimes gives us that gift when we've been humiliated before others. I found it to be true, as I'm sure some of you have as well, what C.S. Lewis says, that the Lord shouts to us in our pain. It's through our struggles and our pain and our losses in this life that our eyes are lifted to see the thing we could never lose. And that's the love and the mercy of Christ. And it's the thing we need the most. And we can never lose. It can never be ripped away. Even though all these other things might be stripped away from your life. As often as not, it is that humility that's born of being exposed that enables us to love another person, to serve another person without judgment, to serve someone else without pride. It's when we come face to face with our own rescue by our faithful Savior, then we have developed within us a desire to give and serve and love, even if it costs us our own comfort. The price for change in my life and often in yours is humiliation. I wonder if there is some humiliation, some madness in your life through which the Lord is rebuilding your heart to be more like Jesus' heart. Has He given you that kind of beautiful, disruptive gift? It shouldn't surprise us, should it, that that's His methodology? It shouldn't surprise us to know that the Lord Jesus the one who spoke creation into existence, 
the one who holds all things together by the word of his power, the truly exalted Lord, king over all, humbled himself on a cross, a cross of shame for you and for me. He was humiliated, not because of his guilt, but because of my guilt and your guilt, my shame and your shame. The price of our change was his humiliation upon the cross. He's the one who loves us enough and treasures us enough to endure the humiliation of the death we deserved in order to lift us in victory over our guilt and our sin and our shame. Now He's the one who was humiliated and has now been exalted to rule and reign over all. And here's the amazing thing. We are raised and united to Him. We are united to Christ. And our humiliation has been spent on the cross and now we reign with Him. His victory is ours. His life is ours because His humiliation gives us life. Would you trust the One who was humiliated that you might be lifted to glory? Friends, whatever trial or suffering or pride or place that's being ripped away from your hands right now, Keep your eyes on Jesus, for He is the one who turns our shame into rejoicing. And when our eyes are fixed on Him, when we abide in Him, the one who has done for us what all of our pride could never do, the one who has delivered us from our madness and our sin, when we keep our eyes focused on Him, pride in our deeds begins to crumble because He is the one who humbles the proud but He also lifts high the humble. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that by Your grace and Your mercy we would learn with Nebuchadnezzar the beauty of having our comfortable lives disrupted that we might see Your glorious grace alive and at work within us. We pray, Jesus, as we really don't enjoy being forced to see our sin and our need, We don't enjoy being forced to name our shame. And yet, Lord, it is through that naming and that confession that we are freed from our burden of our sin and our shame. We pray, Lord, that we would be lifted high after we've been cast down, that we might name Your goodness and Your grace and Your mercy, and we might be changed from the inside out from proud people like Nebuchadnezzar to the humble who are willing to spend our lives in love for someone else. Make us like that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.